I'm Lillian Vasquez with Lifestyles on KVCR. Thanks for listening. November is Native American Heritage Month. So on today's show, we'll revisit my interview with author and chef Freddie Bitsui. His cookbook is New Native Kitchen, celebrating modern recipes of the American Indian. We'll talk about his book and his years spent in the kitchen preparing foods. Then I'll speak with Liz McSwain, Executive Director of Caramel Connection Foundation. She'll share details about their community garden and what's happening in their kitchen, as well as their upcoming fundraiser on November 19th. But up first, it's my conversation with Chef Freddie Bitsui. Thank you so much for joining us. You went from studying cultural anthropology and then art history and then finding your place in the culinary world. Do you think the two, anthropology and art, kind of worked out well for your culinary ways naturally for indigenous dishes? It really was a natural way to transform into being a culinarian, especially from the historical standpoint and from an idea of how to talk about Native American foods. Because what had happened, it was so serendipitous. There was one semester where I spent one class in the humanities department studying history. It was history of Iberia, 1530. And then that's when the Habsburgs of Austria started taking over um, the Iberian Peninsula and most of the uh, European royalty. There was Mexican history that studied Mexico at, at the time of conquest. And then there was art history where I studied neoclassical art. And all three of these disciplines at the same time talked about colonization in the Western Hemisphere. It was so interesting how three different points of view addressed how the Western Hemisphere was colonized and how culture changed suddenly. And the one subject that kind of stayed out of the whole stories was the food. Oh. It got me to start thinking about how the culinary history was moving in the Western Hemisphere, kind of thought, you know what, I think I'll take a chance at trying to study prehistoric culinary efforts. I just kind of got into the the sense of going to culinary school in Scottsdale. I want to ask you, as a kid, did you like all foods? Was cooking something you liked to do at a young age, or did you learn to love it later in life? Oh, no. I was always the adventurous eater in my family. The best way for me to explain it was when I was a, a junior in college, in my kitchen, I'd have a KitchenAid mixer. I have a, a Cuisinart food processor. I'd have all the gadgets and all the tools. Then I'd go into other college students' apartments, and all I see is the PlayStation and a <laughs> half-eat pizza, you know? Cooking was part of, of my life, but as far as doing it professionally, I just didn't think that's what I would be think that I would be doing. It just happened that way, and... um. 10 times happier because of it. Oh, that's lovely. When you love what you do, it makes going to work really easy. When you're cooking, what goes through your mind when preparing a dish? A lot of things go through my mind. What I love is when I cook and someone eats it for the first time and they're like, mmm, it's so good. It's kind of like that. that's like the natural high for me. It's my alone time. It's the time that I am very tranquil and I'm, I'm very just happy to be alive when I do it. It's just a fun experience. Even if it's something simple like tacos or something complicated like making a asabuco, it's just a very tranquil time for me. And nobody bothers me when I cook. So, oh. and, and on top of that, people like talking to me when I cook because I'm I'm just kind of like in this very neutral space and I have no cares in the world. So you're in a good yeah. place. Now, when I cook, when I make tacos, I always have to make my tacos with caminos and onions 
and other things when I season my meat. I, I can't not make ground beef without Caminos. So I'm wondering if there are certain staples or seasonings that you cook with when you're making native dishes. When it comes to native dishes, it varies based on culture. For example, I'm here in Minneapolis and everybody uses ramps, you know, like kind of like a form of a wild onion. In the Southwest, especially in New Mexico, everyone cooks with chilies. In my native kitchen, I do not do a dish without any onions. Like there's always onions. I always tease my mom when, when I'm at home. It's like my mom has this really great story about paper towels where she says, I just feel like my house is cold when the paper towel, the hanger, is empty. And so I tell my mom, that's your gauge. My gauge is onions. If there's no onions in the house, my home is cold. Mm. So because the Navajo people, for example, really did forest and harvest wild onions. It's always been a part of my life, and I just can't live without onions. Yeah, I can't live without onions either. I could live without avocados, but I can't live without onions. <laughs> avocados are one things that I just do not eat. And so, yeah. Oh, I'm shocked. That is one thing I won't. I don't like the texture. I don't like anything about them. I don't, I don't. Avocados are like avocados, but I do make a great guacamole. Oh, so good. I'm told. So you're told, right? Because you're not testing it. When you're teaching classes, what do you want to instill in your students? That's a wonderful question. What I like to tell people is that when they go to their supermarket, even if it's just the local Vons, the majority of the ingredients in those supermarkets are Native American ingredients. When they're going down the aisle, say like the canned vegetable aisle, they see the can of hominy, you know, that's a Native American ingredient. That that truly is a staple that is a part of Native American culture. Mm. Everything from the corn tortillas to the Mexican spices, everything that is in a supermarket, even if it's here in Minneapolis, is Native American. Just to get the idea that prior to European conquest of the Western Hemisphere, 70% of the world's ingredients came from the Western Hemisphere. Mm. The ingredients were quite limited in Europe. And when it came to um, chilies, you can't think of Indian food without chilies, Thai food without chilies. If it wasn't for the um, culinary exchange that happened in the mid-16th century, foods would be different throughout the entire world if it wasn't the contribution of Native culture to the rest of the world. And that's what I try to let people understand and know that there's such a vast culinary experience in the Western Hemisphere, and I, I think people need to really appreciate that. My guest is author and chef Freddie Bitsui. His book is Native Kitchen, Celebrating Modern Recipes of the American Indian. So how do you work to make a menu special for guests? So you've been a personal chef, you've been a, a chef at some beautiful places where they have very elegant foods, but when you're putting together the menu, how do you work to make a menu special for your guests? What I do is like, for example, I did an event at the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, in New York. Yes. It was their first time debuting a Native American exhibition. I was privileged to walk through the entire exhibition alone before it opened. Mm -hmm. Ideas from which tribes they were highlighting. They wanted a, a modern uh, menu. They didn't want anything ancestral or traditional. I curated a menu that entailed ingredients from certain tribes. Like for example, they had some works from the Tonod Adam tribe. 
they're known to harvest uh, prickly pears. So I, like I did a prickly pear cheesecake. It really has to do a lot with the personality of the environment that I'm going to be preparing foods for. That's kind of what I really like to do. Even if it takes a lot of research and if, if it takes a lot of creativity, that's what I get hired for. It's always a, a non-fail system that, that I have to create these menus. Regardless of how simple it may be, it is a really hard job to do behind the scenes. Oh, and of course. I just make it look easy. You have the gift of making it look easy. Tell me where you actually studied and then how you fine-tuned your cooking skills. Let me start before Scottsdale. I did anthropology at the University of New Mexico and art history at the University of New Mexico. But when I um, decided to go to culinary school, it was in Scottsdale. It was a Le Cordon Bleu school. It's no longer operating. So they closed a lot of the schools in, in the United States. It was a great school, but what I like to tell people is Culinary school does not teach you how to cook. Culinary school teaches you how to cook for the masses and make it look easy. But as far as critiquing and also fine-tuning my cooking, it was a lot of on-the-field work. What I had done after culinary school, I realized that a lot of people were getting hired in Native American casinos. I say it as a joke. Nobody who wants to be a chef says, I'm going to be a chef at an Indian casino. I'm not knocking the whole business, but when you want to be a chef, you want to work in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, you know, like the food cities, San Francisco, Oakland. I developed an educational program for people who need a job and there's an Indian casino three miles down. You know, they apply for a job and they get put in the kitchen, but they don't have any culinary experience. So for about 10 years, I used to go to casinos and train them help them cook, help them understand food cost, help them understand the P&L part of, of, of the kitchen. And it was quite rewarding. I felt as though I was doing something good for my community. Mm. And it took me to different communities. It brought me to like, uh, for example, like Bemidji. It took me to uh, Southern California, Morongo. It took me to all these other different places throughout the country. And that's how I kind of started developing my recipe book and my story complete my new Native Kitchen book that's out now. Well, let's talk a little bit about that book. So you picked up recipes along the way or going to different places. You said this will be a good one for my book or you intended to write a book. How did that fall into place? It's a conglomerate of all the things that you've said. I never really planned. I, it was really never a goal of mine to write a book. It really was a matter of travel. I had the privilege of being the chef at the National Museum of the American Indian for four years. And because of COVID, the restaurant closed and I think they went in a different direction. So they didn't call me back, which is fine. It led me to new projects and new way of thinking. It really was a journey of saving recipes, of saving stories, of saving experiences and forming it in a book. So New Native Kitchen, in a way, really documents uh, the journey that I took from 2010 to now. For example, I did an event in North Vancouver Island in a small town called Port Hardy, a group of people from the Quagilt tribe. Just in my own ignorance, I thought every native tribe ate corn. <laughs> but in Canada, it's a little different story. They don't eat corn as much as we do in the Southwest. So I decided to do a, a version of pasole. But instead of using pork or beef or chicken, I decided to use uh, salmon and shrimp. In, in my modern way of thinking, I decided to make like a French bouillabaisse, but instead of a, a French soup, I decided to use the Mexican style of cooking the pozole, and I used the salmon and prawns <laughs> and halibut. 
So it was, it was a very expensive soup. The stores didn't even sell hominy. So it, I had to get him shipped in from, from Calgary for 500 people. They weren't familiar with the chili and I had to make it really mild. Stories such as that are things that are in my book that have my experiences of learning the adaptation of being with that culture and my culture and knowing that even though we're all Native American and all, all First Peoples, our cultures are different. And it's always a great story to tell and it always makes people chuckle. So it's a very great book that has sustainable recipes but it also has uh, my humor and my experiences in there. So that's what I'm so proud of. So I have to ask, what did they say of the dish? Did they enjoy it? They loved it. I made it to where it was very mild, but they were scared of the word chili, but they loved it. So it's a dish they'll never forget. All right, in my last couple of minutes with you, I want to ask two things. What do you like most about being a chef? So cliche, and so people are going to probably be so disappointed for me saying it this way, but I love the fact that food brings people together. If you're around great people, great food, your food will always be its best. Like ask yourself, when was the best meal that you ever had? Was it because of the food or was it because of the company? It's kind of like the chicken or the egg idea. Regardless of the environment, regardless of anything, but as long as you're with good company and you're eating great food, you'll never have a bad time. Like, for example, I eat alone. I love to eat alone. I like my own company and my <laughs> my meals are always the best. So, <laughs> yeah, that that's... <laughs> okay, so now I have a personal question. Does it bother you when someone orders their meat well done? No, it doesn't. Oh. I have no judgment on how people choose their temperature of meat because a lot of people in my family, for example, order um, well done. And there's a story that I've heard in, in native tradition where the reason why some people eat food well done is because for lack of a better way of saying it is it's just to respect the animal and to make sure that it's completely cooked. And I don't know how true that is or if anyone else heard that, but to me, it makes a lot of sense. I, on the other hand, like to eat rare and medium rare. When other people order a certain foods, I respect how they do it. But as a professional cook, I always tell my server, make sure the cook knows to put their meat on first after mine. <laughs> um, but no, it, it really doesn't. I don't want a well-done steak. That's very good. Thank you so much. To learn more about Chef Freddie Batsui and his cookbook, visit our website at kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles and click on today's show. We need to take a quick break, and when we return, I'll speak with Liz McSwain, Executive Director of the Caramel Connection Foundation. You're listening to Lifestyles on KVCR. I'm Lillian Vasquez. We'll be back in a flash. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Lifestyles on KVCR. I'm Lillian Vasquez. My guest now is Liz McSwain. She's the founder and executive director of the Caramel Connection Foundation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. How did your organization come about? What triggered in you to start this foundation? 
Well, my family and I believe that food is life, food is love, and we've always used food to help our children transition, whether we move to make friends. My youngest son, Alec, he's really into culinary arts from an early age, and it was one of the best ways for us to help him to break down barriers of his shyness. That's terrific, and I know that many of those with special needs often take the culinary classes and they kind of come together and find their way in the kitchen. Whether it's just dicing or slicing, it seems to be something that um, many can get behind. Absolutely. We work with young adults as well as children with special needs, and it is a universal language. Even if they're not able to communicate 100% the same way that you and I do, there's something, it brightens the eyes, it brightens the smile. Food is definitely a great way to communicate. And it just feels inclusive, feels like they can be a part of something. Tell me the name, why Caramel Connection? Well, it's really a teaser. If you think about it, caramel leads you in. You think you're going to get all this sweetness, but in actuality, we teach you how caramel, which is another name for sugar, impacts your body. We believe that healthy living starts with healthy eating, and we're committed to empowering families to make nutritious, choices. The organization is there for kids or young adults to learn about eating healthy. Tell me what Seeds of Joy is. Our Seeds of Joy community garden grows fresh produce that we donate to local pantries. We donate them to the low-income families that we serve. And it's just this community hub, this beautiful space that we're in partnership with the Ontario Community Life and Culture Department. And our goal is just to utilize this space to uplift and edify the community. And who gets to participate in the garden? How do others get to participate? Oh, the stakeholders, it varies. You may be living within walking distance, and you can become a stakeholder just by helping us to maintain. If you want to be a partner in regards to utilizing your gifts, your services, you're able to do that. But ultimately, Caramel Connection services the Inland Empire, so it's not just restricted to the city of Ontario, but ideally we want to be able to positively impact those within a certain logistical landscape around the space. Let's talk about some of the different services that you have. Tell me about the workshops from seed to harvest. What's going on in a workshop? So the workshop, we're helping you to learn how to grow, cultivate, and then harvest and cook a nutritious organic meal. So ultimately, when you come into the space, like myself, I did not have a green thumb. However, through our partnership with the Master Gardener program and becoming a Master Gardener, I've learned how to grow different types of produce, and I'm able to share those skill sets with families so that, yes, they can come to the garden and harvest, but if I can give them the seeds and teach them how to nurture them at their homes, now we're really changing the landscape of the community. They are really participating from seed to harvest, so they can plant there or they can have the seeds in their home and plant there. Correct. And then whatever tools that they need, we're able to help supplement. So if it's soil, they are equipped with journals, and then they're able to come back on a monthly or quarterly basis to take different classes with us so that that can help develop their skill set. What age group are we talking here? From cradle to the grave. I mean, literally, (laughs) we have it where we have... um, programs where we're teaching lactating moms how to eat more to produce healthier milk. We're teaching senior citizens certain foods that might help with bone density. So we really do service all ages. We initially started focusing on middle school age children because we did believe that if we were able to get them at an early age, they would be able to change behaviors. But it really couldn't stop there. It had to be inclusive of all of the generations because then when they go home, if the parents are giving them chips, it doesn't help. 
So when we invited the families to participate, that's when we noticed the truth change. We noticed that the children are telling us, well, this avocado has good fat. Wow, okay. And then the grandmother and the mother, you know, they're able to support the child's change versus different types of snacks that are more processed. So it's more generalized. So it's not just the child learning, it's the entire family learning and buying into the process. Exactly. Whole foods versus processed foods. Once they start taking these classes, a lot of times it has to be taken more than once for it to stick, but it does make a difference. It does help for them to make changes at home when they're doing it together in the community and then they're doing it together practicing at home. Got it. Let me reintroduce my guest is Liz McSwain. She's the founder and executive director of Caramel Connection Foundation. All right. I want to talk about the cooking classes. What goes on at the cooking classes? Well, everything from hummus to a black bean hamburger, we make it all. Don't try to fight your favorites. We just try to enhance them and infuse them with a little more nutrition. They really have the um, opportunity to make several different things. Is it a lesson plan and they're there for an hour or two hours? So right now we're currently in the process of every Thursday for 16 weeks, we have something called a Whole You Wellness Program. And you're able to meet with us at the Anthony Munoz Community Center and we do a cooking class. We do everything connected to teaching you food safety, from food safety to food preparation. Some classes are inside the actual building or we may walk over to our beautiful community garden and harvest some of the ingredients so that we can make a fresh pizza using basil, the tomatoes grown, eggplant, zucchini. It just depends on what we're doing, but ultimately Mm. showing that at any level you can do something in the kitchen to start your healthy lifestyle if that's your choice. Then you have yoga. Tell me about the yoga classes or the yoga experience. So the yoga experience is a wonderful opportunity to just be outdoor and experience the therapeutic benefits of being in a garden space. Whether you have mobility issues like myself, I have lupus, so my range of motion is a little different than someone who can put their head all the way to the back of their legs. But whatever your mobility ability is, we have something for you. It's just a beautiful space that that's where we teach you how the basics of yoga. And then you do canning there. A lot of times when we have an abundance of something, it can go to waste. So the benefit of learning how to ferment and can is that you can take different things, whether it be peaches, apples, and you can can them and preserve them for the next season, and you can share them as holiday gifts. But ultimately, we engage with the families in a way that we teach them how to stretch all of their meal options. So if you have an apple and you want to make an apple pie, that's great. Or if you want to learn how to preserve it so that you can share it with maybe a visitor during the holidays, you can learn how to stretch your harvest. That's very cool. Is there a fee for participants? So in regards to our fees and services, we've actually worked really hard to let that not be a barrier for people to participate. What we do is seek out sponsorships and donations so that this way we can maintain that we can open our classrooms to those in need and not have the barrier be that they could not afford a 50 or or $100 fee to get in. But we do have partnerships that do sponsor the individuals to be able to take the class. When they come and they make whatever they make, they take it home with them? Yes, they make and take. So a lot of times, whether or not we're doing a cooking demonstration, at the end of the 16-week program, we do it intentionally near the holidays so that they get a basket of those items, the ingredients. And a lot of times we give them the tools. So whether it's a blender, a mixer, a a crock pot, the tools to be able to duplicate it at home. Because again, we're servicing typically low-income families and teaching them how to make it without giving them the tools 
that's not the goal. The right. goal is so that they can go home and be empowered and be able to duplicate it and feed their family without any challenges. I love it. To do all this, it takes funding. How do you raise the funds to do the project that you're trying to do? So we do have some fantastic partners, but we typically do at least one large fundraising event per year, and it's actually coming up. We're hosting something called a Friendsgiving event, and it's going to take place November 19th at the Anthony Munoz Community Center. And it's going to be a celebration of those who help us, those who benefit, and there's a suggested donation of $100 for the participation. There are a lot of immersive activities. There are different ways that you can support this event and our programs. Whether or not you could attend the event, you could sponsor a seat for an adult with special needs or a senior citizen, or you can just come, check us out, learn more about what we do, visit our website, which is caramelconnections.org, and there's just a plethora of ways to help us. So that's your Mad Hatter Friendsgiving? That's the event that's taking place on November 19th? Yes, and we're playing with that concept because just like yourself, we all wear so many hats and sometimes (laughs) we forget to practice self-care. This is going to be an opportunity to see our garden, see our space, see our programming, but most importantly, benefit from all of the different things that we're doing and experience it in a small way, but in a great way. So the 19th falls on a Sunday, and it's after church, and it's 3 o'clock, which is pretty much like a high tea time because a lot of people do connect the Mad Hatter with tea time, (laughs) so there will be that component to it as well. How do others get involved, or is there volunteer opportunities? Yes, there most definitely are wonderful volunteer opportunities. And again, on the website, there's a Contact Us page, and it will list out the different events that we're doing. There's just different things connected to a general event. So listeners or anyone that is interested in attending can make a donation of $100. They would get an online ticket through Eventbrite because that's the platform that we're using. Or if they were to call in, it would be a will call. But ultimately, it is limited seating, and we are mm. almost sold out. Nice. So if, you're, if, if it sounds like something you want to do, there will be some traditional beef and chicken items, you know, but ultimately we want to show you how eating from the garden can be actually really enjoyable. You know, some people think plant-based food can't be delectable. It is. It's delicious, so we can't <laughs> wait to share. But in general, would volunteers, I don't know, horticulturists or master gardeners or uh, just anybody be part of the garden or the culinary classes or the yoga classes? What are you looking for in a volunteer? No green thumbs necessary, but obviously, cool. yes, if you're a horticulturist, they are more than welcome to share this skill set. So anyone who is interested, there is a way, whether it's composting, whether it's helping us to weed, because the garden always gives you something to do every day, even if it's just supporting someone else, because we do have seniors there. We do have adults with special needs. We do seed savings. We're about to start a major seed saving program because, again, the whole premise is is saving the seeds that work in this space so that we can plant for the next generation and keep sharing the skill set. We are going to be giving away 50 free trees. All they have to do is go to the website and they'll see the link and get more information about how to register for that as well. Oh, I love it. Now let's share with our audience where the garden is located. The Seeds of Joy Community Garden is located in the Anthony Munoz Park, 1240 West 4th Street in the city of Ontario, right off of the 10 Freeway in Mountain. Well, it sounds just like a commercial. You did a great job. Liz, thank you so much for having a garden for our community members to enjoy. Thank you for having me.
To learn more about the Caramel Connection Foundation and their community garden, go to our website at kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles and click on today's show. That's our show for this week. To hear any of our past shows, visit our website at kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles. Lifestyles is available on the KVCR app. Get it on Google Play or download it from the App Store. Thanks to all who helped to make this show possible, including Sharina Wad, David Fleming, Sean Houlihan, and our executive producer, Rick Dulock. Our theme music is provided by Ethan Bortnick. Join me next week at the same time for Lifestyles with me, Lillian Vasquez. Bye for now. Yeah, the simple things in